My point is, the Mont Blanc was carrying 2,925 metric tons of explosives, various explosive compounds, on board its ship, and it was heading into the Halifax Harbor, and it was set to smash into the Emo. Welcome to A Popular History of Unpopular Things, a podcast that's mostly scripted that makes history more fun and accessible. My kind of history is the unpopular stuff. Death, disease, destruction. I like learning about all things bloody, gross, mysterious, and weird. Now before we begin, just a reminder to please support me on Patreon if possible. Putting out episodes takes a lot of time, and your support will help ensure that the podcast keeps going strong. I appreciate any help you can give me, and thank you so much for being a fan. Now today, I want to talk about explosions. And ships. Ship explosions, in fact. On December 6th, 1917, two ships collided in the Halifax Harbor in Nova Scotia, Canada. Now, normally, when two ships collide, there's going to be some damages, right? If the two ships just glance each other on the sides, maybe just a few cosmetic problems. But if they're going at speed and they hit it in just the right angle, they may need to do dry dock for repairs, right? Bring it into the port, do some repairs before it can go out. Luckily, if they're in a harbor, like, I don't know, the Halifax Harbor, theoretically, there should be a lot of help around, right? Well, in this case, December 6, 1917, one of the two ships involved in a collision, the French cargo ship, the SS Mont Blanc, was filled with explosives. The other ship, the Norwegian SS Emo, plowed right into it. On impact, the Mont Blanc caught fire and exploded. And the explosion was so powerful that it caused nearby buildings in Halifax to collapse. Over 1,700 people died, and another 9,000-plus were injured, and it stands as the largest accidental non-nuclear explosion in history. So today, I want to explore the Halifax explosion. How did these two ships collide in this busy, well-known Nova Scotia harbor? Why was there a harbor up in Nova Scotia in the first place? And since it happened in 1917, does it have any connection to World War I? As we always do on the AFOUT podcast, we'll start by exploring the historical context of the period. What was going on in the world in 1917 that led to the explosion in Halifax Harbor? And once we've established the context, we'll explore the details of the day itself and learn more about what went wrong with these two ships. So let's get started. Now, when I told you that the Halifax explosion took place in 1917, I hope your brain immediately went to World War I, if me mentioning it didn't do that for you. And if so, then good. You know your history basics. And if not, yeah, I love you anyway. But you know what's kind of creepy? In the last episode, I taught you all about the Monongah mine disaster, right? Well, that was exactly 10 years before the Halifax explosion. Same day. Both explosions happened on December 6th, just 10 years apart. What are the odds that I managed to pick two explosions that share a date to be episodes one after another? Totally random. Anyways, World War I, also known as the Great War. The U.S. entered World War I in April of 1917, though the war itself began in 1914. Maybe you remember the acronyms used to remember the causes of World War I? Some of you might have learned main, the main causes. Uh, Some learned mania. I'll review the reasons real quick. 
So the long-term causes were militarism, a system of alliances between European nations, industrialization, imperialism, and nationalism. Let me tie those all together for you real quick. In the later 19th century, that's the 1800s, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing, and European nations were profiting off of it immensely. It began in England in the 1700s and spread over to the rest of the European continent and then over to the United States. Why Britain first? Well, they had a stable economy built off of hundreds of years of mercantilism, profiting off of their colonies all around the world. They had a massive, growing, stable population. People had more money, so they were spending it and investing in creating new businesses and playing around with new technologies. And England, unlike their continental neighbors, was not struggling with political revolutions, right? Think back to France in the same period of time, French Revolution. And, of course, they had an immense amount of coal underground. In the last episode, the Monongah Mine Disaster, I explained that coal was essential to industry. Burning coal produces steam, and we harness that steam for industrial power. So Europeans had industrial power and industrial technology in spades by the end of the 1800s, and it was far beyond just those early days of factories and trains. Military technology was vastly improved as well. That helps explain our militarism. And with these new, stronger, and powerful weapons, Europeans set off to conquer more lands where they'd find more natural resources to make more stuff to make more money. Imperialism, right? This, of course, led to a competition between these nations. They all fought over different colonies all throughout the world, especially in Africa and in Southeast Asia. Now, because of this intense competition, European nations started to ally themselves with their friends, promising to go to war to defend each other if necessary. So you're looking at a Europe with lots of money, strong weapons, industrial technology, resources from imperial colonies. They're competing with one another, and they promise to go to war to defend each other, right? This is essentially like a barrel of gasoline, and the only thing stopping it from exploding is a spark. Well... That spark came in the form of an assassination. The assassination of the Archduke of Austria-Hungary, whose name was Franz Ferdinand, not the band. Long story short and simplified, a Serbian nationalist was responsible for this assassination, so Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. Serbia, though, was allied with Russia, so Russia, honoring that alliance agreement, right, jumped into the war. And then from there, more and more European countries are jumping in, backing up those with whom they had an alliance. World War I had begun. The U.S., although we were friends with the U.K. and France, we stay out of the war until 1917. That's not to say we did not support our closest allies, again, the Brits and the French. We sent plenty of weapons and provisions to help them, just not troops, right? We were not actively in war yet. The U.S. president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, had a policy of isolationism, essentially staying out of everybody else's business and instead focusing on domestic issues, issues at home. But this changed in 1917 when Germany forced our hand. So Germany throughout World War I had been using untersea boots. More frequently, we just call them U-boats, but untersea boots. Early model submarines. They were, they were deadly. 
They were deadly. In 1915, Germany sank the RMS Lusitania. You've probably heard of that if you remember sitting through US2 in school, right? They sank the Lusitania, which was a British ocean liner, and on board were 1,959 men, women, and children. Of them, 1,195 died, including some American citizens. The Germans were scared that the U.S. would enter the war effort, so they agreed to back off with the U-boats for a little while. Now, in early 1917, Germany resumed what we call unrestricted submarine warfare. But this was the final straw for the Americans, and President Wilson broke his policy of isolationism. The U.S. entered the war a few months later, April 1917. So, 1917, right, there are tons of ships coming and going across the Atlantic, especially now that we're actively in war, and they're using major ports all along the East Coast. The Halifax Harbor in Nova Scotia was one of these major ports. So let's focus a little bit more on that port itself, how it became so popular, and why those two ships crashed on December 6th, 1917. So Halifax Harbor is actually a pretty interesting place from a geological standpoint, at the very least, because it's one of the deepest natural harbors in the world. That whole area used to be a glacial valley, but when the glaciers receded around 13 to 14,000 years ago, the sea levels rose and formed this super deep, ice-free, by the way, no ice forms there, even though it's really high up, natural harbor. Natural, of course, meaning not man-made, right? Parts of the harbor are incredibly, incredibly deep, which is really good for ships pulling into a port because, you know, running aground in shallow waters is not fun. Halifax Harbor sits on the eastern side of Nova Scotia, which is a peninsula. On the other side of Nova Scotia, by the way, is the Bay of Fundy. And I'm only telling you this because the Bay of Fundy is famous for its tides, like world famous. They can swing upwards of 70 feet in either direction from high tide to low tide. And of course, that's twice a day, right? That also means that there's some killer surfing there. So it's cold, but the surfing's pretty neat. The Bay of Fundy is also, by the way, where the ghost ship Mary Celeste was originally built. That was a fun episode, too. I think that was number five. That was a super early one. So you should go listen to that when you're done with this one. Now, the first people who lived in this area were a group known as the Mi'kmaq, the largest of the First Nations people that lived on the eastern seaboard part of Canada. They typically stayed there just seasonally, though, because they were primarily nomadic peoples, hunting caribou and moose in the winter and fishing or hunting for seals in the summer. So European explorers, primarily the French and English if we're talking this far north, started visiting this area as early as 1605, though the first town wasn't really incorporated until the British seized the area and built a permanent settlement in 1749, Halifax. The harbor is actually the reason why Halifax, the town, exists. Now, most ports serve as places where you'd bring agricultural products or manufactured goods, sell them off to merchants, and away they go, right? But Halifax is unique in that its soil is, well, it's not great. The soil is not good for agriculture. And the fishing, it's not right next to the harbor, actually. You have to go a little ways to be able to access the good fishing spots. And yet, the harbor is still incredibly popular. But why? It's far north. It's cold. Sure, it's deep. But the land isn't great for growing crops nearby. So why Halifax, right? Well, this is the important part. Halifax is the closest North American port to Europe. 
two whole days closer than any other port on the North Atlantic coast. Isn't that cool? It's a pretty significant advantage, especially during times of war. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Now, World War I wasn't the first war that took advantage of the Halifax port. For that, we need to actually look back at the American Revolutionary War. The British still controlled Halifax by this point, so they used it primarily as a prisoner of war camp, actually, and a navy yard, a dockyard, where they would fix ships. Not only were prisoners held on some of the smaller islands in Halifax Harbor, like Melville Island, but they also had a prison ship floating around there called the Lord Stanley. That's cool. Prison ships, what a concept. So as a result, the town and the port only grew larger. By 1841, it was incorporated as a city, and within a few decades of that, it was connected to railroad infrastructure, making it an even more powerful economic center for eastern Canada, still a part of Britain by this point. Shipbuilding industries popped up in Halifax. Sugar refining factories ready to import sugarcane from the Caribbean and export it across the British Empire, right? So Eastern Canada underwent a process of what we call Confederation on July 1st, 1867. A bunch of the provinces in the East united, including Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Quebec, and Ontario. And this was great for building a federal government, but not great, actually, for growing international trades. Because the Confederation, fearing a global recession in 1873, severely limited international trade. Which was the entirety of Halifax's existence. Remember, the land is not great, right? So a lot of manufacturers ended up moving to other cities like Montreal and Toronto, ones that aren't so far north and are more connected to railroad infrastructure than all the way up in Nova Scotia. Halifax was left pretty much as just an army and a navy base. In 1906, the Canadian government took over control of Halifax. It was the same year, 1906, that Halifax also experienced its first shipwreck, actually, the SS Havana, which was rammed by the SS Strathcona, and the Havana sank deep into the harbor. The first, probably not the last. Now, when World War I rolled around, Halifax was still primarily a military base. Since it was so close to Europe, it was the perfect place to ship troops and supplies across the Atlantic. And that is why a French munitions ship filled with explosives was pulling into Halifax on December 6, 1917. The explosion happened at 9.05 a.m. And because this is how my brain works, I checked the data, and it was definitely daylight by 9.05 a.m. on December 6th in Halifax, so it wasn't a question of not being able to see. Now, the Norwegian steamship, the SS Emo, was leaving Halifax Harbor and heading for New York. On board, it was carrying supplies for a Belgian relief organization. But unfortunately, at the same time that the Emo was leaving port, the French steamship, SS Mont Blanc, was entering the port. 
they were on a collision course with no time to correct it. They did try, mind you, but there just wasn't enough time. The captain of the Mont Blanc saw the emo when it was only three quarters of a mile away. They just, again, not enough time to pull off to the side. Moving heavy ships like that, it's not going to turn on time. Now, unfortunately for everyone in the harbor, the Mont Blanc was carrying 2,925 metric tons of explosives, including benzol, TNT, and picric acid, all destined to go to the French to help them fight back against the Germans. In April 1917, the French were revving up to begin the Nivelle Offensive, a Franco-British operation to push the Germans back from the deadlocked front line cutting through the French countryside, right? Now, benzol, also known as benzene, is a highly flammable liquid that can be used as fuel, but it was also used to fill incendiary bombs. These bombs would then be dropped from aircraft and boom, right? Now, it's worth pointing out that aerial bombing in World War I was not super accurate. It was basically just pilots relying on their own sight lines and just dropping bombs when they thought they were on target. So you can imagine that not all bombs hit their mark. So they had to make a lot of them. TNT, you've probably heard of, but just in case, TNT stands for trinitrotoluene, and it's super, super explosive. Fun fact, by the way, exposure to TNT is super toxic, and it can stain your skin orange and yellow. Yikes. Picric acid, the other one, is, you guessed it, also used for explosives. And since it's an acid, there are more uses for it in the world, but in the late 19th century, they found out it was really, really good for explosives. So just add that onto the list. My point is, the Mont Blanc was carrying 2,925 metric tons of explosives, various explosive compounds, on board its ship, and it was heading into the Halifax Harbor, and it was set to smash into the Emo. It was 8.45 in the morning when the two ships collided. The flammable benzol, the benzene, right? It was sitting in barrels on the deck. The barrels fell over from the collision itself. They broke, and you've got rivers of flammable liquid all over the ship seeping into the hold. Sparks from the collision and the ensuing attempts to disengage the engines set the liquid benzol on fire. So now you've got this ship that's on fire slowly coming into the port, right? The crew of the Mont Blanc are panicking because they know what's about to happen. They did attempt to alert the harbor of this ready-to-explode ship careening into the harbor, but they were unable to get through. The captain ordered his crew to abandon ship, trying to get them as far away from it as possible because he knew what was about to happen. So the ship started drifting closer and closer to shore with interested spectators gathering along the waterfront to check out a ship on fire. It reminds me of the people who like, is it Splash Mountain in Disney? I don't know. One of those like water rides where the people will stand on the bridge and wait to get splashed, right? People are just so interested in watching it happen. So you've got all these people coming closer and closer and closer to the harbor, to the piers, watching this spectacle. I mean, it's 1917. You just got this ship on fire up in cold Canada. Just, whoop, oh, there's a ship on fire. Of course people are going to show up. That's crazy, right? Except when the ship got close enough to the pier, the flammable liquid spilled over onto the pier and then the pier caught fire and it started to spread. The, the fire started to spread to Halifax, the city. The fire department was called in and they were there to witness the explosion. 20 minutes after the initial impact, the Mont Blanc exploded. 
The ship was torn apart in the explosion, of course, so there was practically nothing left of it. The explosion reached 9,030 degrees Fahrenheit. 5,000 degrees Celsius. More than 1,800 people were killed in the explosion, and as it happened so close to port, another 9,000 people were injured. The city took immense damage, too. More than 1,600 homes were destroyed. The shockwave from the explosion could be felt 50 miles away, and people hundreds of miles away could hear it. So, by all accounts, a pretty massive explosion. Here's how author Laura McDonald describes the explosion in her book, Curse of the Narrows. Quote, The air blast blew through the narrow streets, toppling buildings and crashing through windows, doors, walls, and chimneys until it slowed to 756 miles an hour, five miles below the speed of sound. The blast crushed internal organs, exploding lungs and the eardrums of those standing closest to the ship, most of whom died instantly. It picked up others, only to thrash them against trees and walls and lampposts with enough force to kill them. Roofs and ceilings collapsed on top of their owners. Floors dropped into the basement and trapped families under timber, beams, and furniture. This was particularly dangerous for those close to the harbor because a fireball, which was invisible in the daylight, shot out over a one to four mile area surrounding the Mont Blanc. Richmond Homes, it's a local town, Richmond Homes caught fire like so much kindling. In houses able to withstand the blast, windows stretched inward until the glass shattered around its weakest point, sending out a shower of arrow-shaped slivers that cut their way through curtains, wallpaper, and walls. The glass spared no one. Some people were beheaded where they stood. Others were saved by a falling bed or bookshelf, but many others who had watched the fire seconds before awoke to find themselves unable to see. End quote. Brutal. What a brilliant way to describe it, though. Now, the explosion also caused a tsunami. (laughs) Giant waves caused by things like earthquakes or undersea volcanic eruptions or, you know, massive explosions in the water. The tsunami waves were 60 feet high, and they traveled three blocks into Halifax. The tsunami was the thing that did a good chunk of the damage to the housing as well after that initial blast. It's the reason why a lot of those homes I mentioned were trashed. The tsunami also brought the emo onto shore, grounding it. It was pretty badly damaged, but it was eventually repaired and rejoined the Norwegian fleet in 1918. Now, surprisingly, all of the crew of the Mont Blanc survived the explosion, probably because they had all abandoned ship by that point, and I imagine they hightailed it as fast as possible away from this ticking time bomb. One man died in the ensuing chaos as debris hit him in the head, but the rest all survived the incident. Nobody was ever charged with any crimes, by the way, though people did try. First, they thought that maybe the Germans were responsible somehow. This might sound a bit outlandish, but remember, the world was at war. Germany was going around in their U-boats causing all kinds of mischief. But of course, it wasn't the Germans. The captain of the Mont Blanc, as well as the ship's harbor pilot, became scapegoats for the explosion and were brought before a judge who found the Mont Blanc at fault for the disaster. It's worth noting, though, that the emo was completely destroyed and most of the crew died in the explosion, so there really wasn't any other option. They couldn't pursue the emo or anybody on board the emo because they were all dead. However, a few of the key men were arrested and charged with manslaughter, though the charges were dropped due to a lack of evidence. 
The appeals were brought all the way up to Canada's Supreme Court, which ended up ruling and saying that the Mont Blanc and the Emo were equally at fault. And in the end, nobody was prosecuted for what happened. Francis Mackey, the harbor pilot on the Mont Blanc, had this to say 40 years later in an interview. Quote, Emo came out on the wrong side, broke the rules, come on the wrong side of a steamer, on the wrong side up in the narrows, and then come down on the wrong side again and struck me. There was no ship allowed to come out when a ship incoming was bound in. Had the right of way myself, but she come out. But, again, pretty much the entire crew of the Emo was killed, so we don't have their perspective on what happened that night. Thanks for joining me for this episode of A Popular History of Unpopular Things. My name is Kelly Beard, and I hope you've enjoyed the story of the Halifax Explosion. Thank you for supporting my podcast, and if you haven't already checked out my other episodes, go have a listen. You can also support me and the show on Patreon. Just look up A Popular History of Unpopular Things and join as a cannibal, an explorer, or a historian. Be sure to follow my podcast, available wherever you listen, so you know when new episodes are dropped. And stay tuned to get a popular history of unpopular things. Uh-huh.